Right now, I want to ask you to join me in prayer. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. I can't kneel today. Um, physically, just a little weak there with that. It'd be fun watching me get up <laughs> for kneeling. Uh, but uh, I invite you to bow your heads and hearts with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much again for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the many blessings that you've promised to us. And one is that you will bless us on this day. And, and Lord, we accept your blessings. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be very present. We ask forgiveness for our sins as a church, Father, and that you will give us the grace we need to come into unity and uh, to be in order, gospel order, according to your government, your plan. These are the things that we've been learning. We pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth today as we continue uh, in uh, looking at church organization and looking at the example of the family in comparison to the church. Father, we also lift up before you those who are sick and ill. We have a prayer list. Uh, we pray for Denny's husband. Uh, we pray for Marcia Jones. Denny's husband has lymphoma. We pray that your healthy hand will touch him and heal him. May he be an incredible testimony to your glory and your grace. With Martha, she's got uh, liver disease. We pray that you will touch her as well. In all these instances... Father, may glory be brought to your name. We lift up uh, those who need finances. We lift up Alo and her circumstance. It's hard for us here uh, who know her uh, to see what's going on. We pray that your hand of providence will uh, bear sway. And uh, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who came here and lived a life of righteousness to teach us how to live, how to be loving. And, uh, Lord, we pray that we will be like Him in each way, that uh, we may hasten His return. Give me the words to speak this morning. May my voice uh, be a strong voice, Lord, and not give out. We thank You so much for hearing this prayer. We ask it in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is so worthy to be praised. Amen. Well, friends, this is part three of actually a four-part uh, series. This is part three of what I entitled The Home and the Church. And in our previous two studies, we have come to understand uh, that the creation and organization of the family, the family circle, if you'll recall, is a model. It's a model that teaches us about the government of God. It teaches us about His church. And also, it teaches us about the character of God. Now, here are three statements to look at again from the pen of inspiration. I want to bring them to you as a reminder, a refresher, as we begin. Uh, the first one's from the Adventist Home, page 306. The Lord designs that the families on earth, now that would be Christian families, right? Families like ours. The Lord designs that families on earth shall be symbols of the family in heaven. We're to be symbols of God's government. Symbols of His family that's in heaven. Here's the second one. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 430. Christian homes established and conducted in accordance with God's plan. And this is what we're learning about, aren't we? We're learning about God's plan are among His most effective agencies for the formation of Christian character, that means to have a character like Him, and for the advancement of His work. So, you know, as we've studied these things out, we see the importance of the Christian family, don't we? It's a lot of things that we can learn in the model for a Christian family, how, what God designed families on earth to be. Here's the third one, Selected Messages, Volume 3, Page 209, very short and simple. Every Christian family is a church in itself. And so, friends, I mean, I could, I could give you dozens and dozens and dozens of statements in a similar line. I don't think that's necessary. You know, 
in the mouth of two or three witnesses, the Bible says. And we got three of them right here. Uh, <clears throat> very powerful statements here about what we can learn from Christian families that are established and conducted according to God's plan. This is what we want to learn. And it'll teach us, it teaches us something about the organization of the church. It teaches us a lot, actually. In parts 1 and 2, we learn seven fundamental truths to proper biblical church order by studying the family. And uh, here are the seven real quickly. First, the Christian family circle is a church. This is something that we learned. It's a church. Now, how that family circle is organized teaches us something about how the local church is to be organized. Second, family order teaches about church order. That's what I just mentioned. Number two. Third, the family and church are organized for what? For service. To spread the gospel. To show Jesus to the world, right? Four, it's not a congregational or a hierarchical form of organization. But it's a representative form of order. As the Bible says, all ye are brethren. And we see this in uh, the, the relationship between a husband and wife. They counsel together. Now somebody's got to make a decision in the family, right? And so that's what the leadership role is about. A final decision does have to be made. But you get counseling from each other. You're all brethren. Five, it is united in faith and doctrine. Okay, It's not one of these, well, we just have love one to another. You know, we are of the same faith. We hold to the biblical doctrines, doctrines taught in the Bible. Sixth, we have a name that expresses who we are. And we went through that. We are to have a name. And seventh, this is where we've come so far, we are to have a covenant bond with each other and God, just like the husband and wife have vowed they have a covenant bond to each other before God. The church is to have a covenant bond with each other before God. And that means you sign a membership covenant. There's a, you know, you have to be invested and prove you're invested. See, and we went through that. This is where, where we, we've come, we've learned. Now, Jesus began His ministry. He began, if you go back through the Gospels, you, you look at this, He began His ministry by establishing proper organization. And uh, we can continue to build our study upon His example. And this is what we're going to do. One of the first things that Jesus did in ministry was that He picked up where John the Baptist had left off and He went about spreading the truth of the Gospel. In speaking of Jesus... What did John say? In John 3 and verse 30, John said, He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. And so it's kind of a passing of the torch, you could say. Now remember, what was John's mission? John was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, and that's what he'd done. Messiah came, John baptized him, there in the Jordan, not because Jesus needed to repent of any sins. But he did it for righteousness sake. It was the proper thing to do. It was an example, wasn't it? John was a voice crying in the wilderness and he attracted many people to the truth and they followed John. And there was therefore a group of followers that was primed by John to follow Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. That's why he said that. He must decrease and I must... or he must increase and I must decrease. That's what John said about Jesus there. So early on, there was a group there that was organized. You know, it may not be greatly organized, but they followed John around. And they did the works of repentance, the Bible tells us. And so early on, Jesus went on what is referred to as, you know, the first Galilean tour. And many in his group uh, in this group that had followed John, followed Jesus, as John had said. And afterwards, near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus chose and He ordained twelve disciples. And this was the first step, you'll find, in, uh, in proper organization at that time. Now those who followed John had loose 
kind of a loose-knit organization. But Jesus began the first step in proper gospel order. Now I want to ask you a question. It says that Jesus ordained twelve. What does it mean to ordain? There's some confusion out there about this. Now if you look the, the word up, it simply means to appoint. Appoint for a specific divine responsibility. That's what ordain means. Now, I've run in to people before, and this is very interesting to me. There are some people that have a real problem with the expression and even the concept of ordination. And I'm baffled by that. Just like, you know, uh, when there was a call to come out of Babylon, and uh, uh, the early Adventist movement there was a, a, a movement to, to better organize and these people who were called out were against organization because they believe that Bab- when you organize, it causes Babylon. <laughs> and so some of the, these people, they look at ordination and they, they kind of, I think, see the, the same thing, that, it, that it's coming from Babylon where, no, it's, it's perfectly biblical. I mean, I've heard some say that it is unbiblical, was instituted by the Roman Catholic Church, so we don't do it. You know, the one thing about the devil is that he aligns truth up very close to error, doesn't he? You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You look for truth. So what Paul says in Thessalonians, keep that which is good. Isn't that what he says? But I would ask people in this that have this kind of, uh, uh, have this thought, uh, I'd ask, how readest thou? I mean, if you go back through the Bible... You know, have you read? Have not read uh, uh, um, Psalms eight? Let's look at Psalms eight. Notice what it says: "O Lord, our our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth! Who has set Thy glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings Thou hast ordained strength because of Thine enemies, that Thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger." When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. That's twice we've seen. And what does it mean again? It means to, to appoint. To set for a specific divine purpose. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. What's this mean? He's ordained. He has set man to a specific purpose, hasn't he? All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the fields, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This whole psalm is bringing glory to God. It's in that he has ordained specifics. In the very beginning of creation, God ordained man to bring honor and glory to him. That's what's being spoken of here. God set man apart for a specific divine purpose, and that's still a purpose today. And so, beloved, the ceremony of laying on of hands in organization, you know, it's a public recognition of a divine appointment. There's nothing evil about that. It's a witness, just like when you're baptized. It's a witness to the world that you've chosen Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's a witness, organization is a witness to the world that whoever has had their hands laid on them has been shown to be called of God to a specific purpose. Now, of course, there are qualifications that must be met before one is ordained. The Bible's clear about that. Not all qualify. Look at Adam, for example. Adam was an obedient servant of the Lord when he was ordained as overseer of the earth. So it is understandable that there are qualifications. But to be against, you know, uh, such a divine purpose is surely against the will of God. So to those who are opposed to the act of organization, I say, you know, I'll give you counsel. Be careful.
people to go by what the Bible says and recommends. I mean, remember, Paul and Barnabas were called of God. They were appointed of God. And then they were publicly ordained by the laying on of hands by the elders of the church at Antioch. This was proper. And I want to add too that we must be careful of the opposite extreme. That is, unless one is ordained of the church, then they aren't ordained of God. That's the other side of the ditch. The other side of the road in the other ditch. And just very simply, I would ask, who ordained John the Baptist? Yet we know that he was ordained of God. So let's be balanced by the word of God, not man, okay? And uh, those who believe such things tend to to fall into that category of extreme, that they think it's the, the church's taking power upon itself that was not given of God. So, you know, let's go by the Word of God. Amen? I'm going to share something with you from Acts of the Apostles, page 160. Before being sent forth as missionaries to the heathen world, These apostles were solemnly dedicated to God by fasting and prayer and the laying on of hands. Thus they were authorized by the church not only to teach the truth, but to perform the rite of baptism and to organize churches, being invested with full ecclesiastical authority. See, it's not just a ceremony. It's not just a show. There's a purpose behind it. The church at Antioch recognized the divine calling, you see, of Paul and Barnabas, How did they recognize it? By the fruit of their lives and their ministry. The Holy Spirit then directed the church to ordain them by the laying on of hands. And like I mentioned before, that ceremony showed that the church supported their divine calling to minister among the Gentiles. It gave them full ecclesiastical authority to speak for the church, to act in the name of the church. They already had authority to speak and act in the name of Christ, so this ceremony was also an indication of unity, you see. Notice this. This is from Acts of the Apostles, a couple pages past, page 162. When a Jewish father blessed his children, he laid his hands reverently upon their heads. When an animal was devoted to sacrifice, the hand of the one invested with priestly authority was laid upon the head of the victim. And when the ministers of the church of believers in Antioch laid their hands upon Paul and Barnabas, they, by that action, asked God to bestow his blessing upon the chosen apostles in their devotion to the specific work to which they had been appointed. Starting to see the picture here? I mean, don't miss two that it was the ministers of the church that did the ordaining of Paul and Barnabas. You see, because not everyone has the divine credentials to officiate in such a capacity. There are levels of responsibility that God has. So only those positions of headship, remember that? Headship? The husband? Those positions of headship, you know, apostle, pastor, elder... Uh, they have the positions of headship that's laid out in the Scriptures. They have the divine credentials to ordain someone as well as they have credentials to, to baptize, to administer the ordinances, to perform marriages, you know, etc. And as we discovered before in studying the family, biblically the husband is to be what? What gender is a husband to be? Biblically speaking, he's to be male, isn't he? And scripturally, they have headship in the family, isn't that right? And so, apostles—excuse me, apostles, pastors, and elders—are to be biblically qualified males only. Now, uh, beloved, this doesn't mean that men are higher or better than women. I mean, as we studied before, each has their role, and we should be pleased and happy to fulfill the role that God has given us. So, Jesus finished His first Galilean tour 
and has returned to the region to the west of the Lake of Galilee. And leaving his followers to spend the night at the foot of the mountain, Jesus spends the entire night in prayer at some secluded spot in the hills above them. I find it interesting that often Jesus devoted an entire night to prayer. Usually, uh, friends, such instances of prayer preceded um, points of decision or, or crisis in the Savior's life or ministry. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that. He sought meditation and prayer at the beginning of His ministry. Prayer likewise marked the opening of His Galilean ministry and immediately preceded His first missionary tour uh, through the towns and the, the villages of Galilee. And so here He is. The night now spent in prayer preceded the ordination of the twelve. It also preceded the Sermon on the Mount. And as our scripture reading uh, told us in Mark 3, verse 13, He goeth up into a mountain, calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to do what? Preach? To have power to heal sickness, there's the health reform message, and to cast out devils. That's interesting, to have power over Satan. Now we look at this a little closer, we find that Jesus had many disciples at this time who'd been following him and learning from him. Sometimes the Bible says, you know, 120, I've seen some estimates up to 500. And it was from this group that Jesus chose 12. Notice this from Signs of the Times, July 18, 1900. The Savior called to him the 12 disciples who since the beginning of his public ministry had been with him. Of course, the number of those had followed John the Baptist, remember. Hearing his words of instruction and warning, witnessing his deeds of mercy and compassion, with solemn reverential awe, the disciples came to receive their commission. So they called twelve. They gave them a purpose, see? It wasn't just a ceremony. They came to receive their commission to be honored by being made laborers together with their Lord and Master. That's key. He wasn't placing them as a you know a boss. They didn't get a promotion, per se, right? They were to be imbued with the Spirit of Christ. This was to fit them to engage in the great and solemn work of bearing to men the message of salvation. Because they're going to be working with Jesus, amen? And this is what she says. They were to work as Christ worked, to shine as lights amid the moral darkness that had enveloped the world. Now there's something that should bring encouragement to us. And this is part of the gospel message. You know, you don't earn salvation and you don't earn merits. They weren't, like I said, being promoted. (laughs) You know, because they'd earned it. I want you to notice that none of the twelve was chosen because of perfection. They weren't perfect, were they? Either in character or in ability. I want you to understand that Christ selected men who were members of the church that were willing and able to learn and whose characters might be transformed, see? All of them had defects of character when called, but these defects, by God's grace, were removed, except in the case of Judas, of course. And in their place, Jesus planted the seeds of the divine character that germinated. It grew to maturity and later produced the fruit of Christ-like character as we see after the crucifixion. And this is what I want you to understand. Christ receives people where they are. And if they are willing and submissive, He transforms them into what He would have them to be. And where He wants them in His church. He appoints men and women to positions of responsibility, not because He considers them fully prepared for all the 
demands these positions you know, may make of them, but because in reading their hearts he discerns latent abilities that under his guidance, that divine guidance, may be encouraged and developed to his glory and to the advancement of his kingdom to bring salvation to men. And this is the way God works. This is the way Jesus works. So don't ever think there's nothing that you you can do for Jesus. It's He who calls who He may. Remember? Notice this, Acts of the Apostles, page 18. It was at the ordination, or ordination of the twelve that the first step was taken in the organization of the church that after Christ's departure was to carry on His work on the earth. It was the first step in proper gospel order, the organization of the church. Now, considering what Jesus was doing in ordaining these men, let me ask you a question. And I want you to think about it. You don't, you don't have to answer, but think about this. Considering what Jesus was doing in calling these men and setting them aside, ordaining them for a divine purpose, their commission, remember, was Jesus starting a new church? Don't answer too quickly. Was he maybe instead organizing his church? What did we just read? First step was taken in the organization of the church that after his departure was to carry on his work on earth. If you have a correct understanding of who and what the church is, then I think you'll answer that correctly. Um, let me ask you this. Did the Jewish church accept Jesus as the head of the church or did they hate Jesus? Oh, they were waging war against Christ, weren't they? So does the church of Christ hate and war against itself? Think it through. So was the Jewish church at that time actually Christ's church? Ooh. I want you to think about that. Remember, wherever Jesus spiritually presides, there is His church. Remember that? Now Jesus was, He was physically among them, but His Spirit was not in their hearts, was it? So was Jesus starting a new church or was He organizing His church? Or maybe I could say reorganizing. At that time, His church was in disarray. So He was reorganizing His church and He began. That first step was the ordination of the twelve. Now, what did the Jews believe though? Well, they didn't really understand who and what the church was. So the Jews believed that Jesus was starting a new organization. They charged that He was an offshoot and was doing away with the law of God and the prophets in the temple, remember? Same arguments you hear today. Virtually. Same thing. Anyone who tries to organize according to the Scriptures is condemned as starting a new organization. But that's not true, is it? I mean, it's really a... Is it really a new organization or is the professed church the new organization? I'll let you chew on that. Anyways, it's really when you, when you look biblically as we have, friends, at who and what the church is, it becomes pretty simple. I mean, what is our message for this day? What is our present truth? It's a three angels' message, is it? Would God's church war against the spreading of the three angels' message? I'll tell you, the spirit that was condemning Jesus then is the same spirit that controls the professed church today. And that's not easy for me to say. It's disheartening. But that's why you see intimidation. That's why you see lawsuits against those who are trying to uphold the historic pillars of the Advent movement and spread the three angels' messages to the world. That's why you see that. So going back to Christ here, and looking at you know, the church here, 
was Jesus out of line in what he was doing? Who's he to ordain twelve? We have the Sanhedrin. We have the temple. Was he forming an organization built upon new or different principles? A new type of gospel order? Or was he using the same principles that are shown throughout the scriptures? It's the same principles, friends. I mean, we could look at Adam as an example, or Abraham, or David, or Nehemiah as an example or an answer to these questions, but I think the Exodus movement is a greater example to learn from. Because the Exodus movement and onward was thoroughly organized. Notice this from the book Education, page 37. It says, Even before they left Egypt, a temporary organization had been effected, and the people were arranged in companies under appointed leaders. You think they all just headed for the mountains? Out of Egypt? No, they were organized. And even though they left Egypt in haste, they left Egypt in order. It was a temporary order until they could meet with God and be more thoroughly organized. Exodus chapter 13, verse 18. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up, notice this, it says, harnessed out of the land of Egypt. They were harnessed. That's interesting. The word harnessed refers to the orderly way in which the Israelites left Egypt. I find it interesting that the margin, uh, it says, in the margin you'll find, it says, by five in rank. That's an interesting, interesting thing. By five in rank, meaning five large divisions under five presiding officers. That's what that means. If you do a little research in the history of that, they were organized after the pattern of an army. This is how an army went out. Five large divisions. And you know that Moses had been the commander-in-chief of the armies of Egypt at one time. He was well trained for organizing and handling large bodies of people. And so here you have Israel. By some estimates you had a few million men, women, and children who left Egypt. Besides their herds of animals... It would have been very difficult to lead them on a journey without discipline and organization, wouldn't it? And then the organization that they had, that that temporary organization, you know, the organization of that movement was further perfected as the needs required. And that's what we see in, throughout history as God dealt with His church. We'll find here later on, you know, as as the early church increased, they found the need to reorganize. You know, and then you have the calling an organization of the 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 deacons okay, and such. We'll get to that. But here we have an example that Moses ran into. He ran into a problem with the way he was handling ministerial duties for the people, and uh, I find that it was his father-in-law. We see this in the Bible his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, who gave him counsel about reorganizing, which Moses chose to implement. Exodus chapter 18, verse 24. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel. Notice, there were qualifications. He just didn't choose men. He chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people. Notice the divisions here. Rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Still kind of a military mentality. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought into Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. So Moses called qualified men to handle responsibilities. 
Now, if you study into this, look at this a little closer, I want you to notice something interesting here. The Israelites had seven groups of leaders over as many divisions. So even though there was still this military kind of mentality in how they're organizing it, the council was given by a priest of Midian who spoke with God. And so there was not just five, but now there's how many? Seven groups of leaders over as many divisions. Jethro was a priest of God, right? Moses was the general human leader of the entire movement, which was divided into the twelve tribal divisions with their respective leaders or princes. These were subdivided in the bodies of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, and fives with their respective leaders. I just find it marvelous and incredible. The organization that God begins here with the Exodus movement. And it's a lesson for us. Without this perfect organization, that movement would have utterly failed of its purpose and would have been helpless against its enemies. Organization saved the movement from going to pieces, friends, when the different apostasies and betrayals as you look through their wanderings um, tried an effort. That was Satan trying an effort to wreck it or lead it back to Egypt. So that's a prime reason for gospel order to protect the flock of God from wolves within and without. That's why organization is a must for us. Paul, I mean, Paul lays it out in in a way in 1 Corinthians 12 where he symbolizes a church as a human body with the head representing Christ, its leader, and the various members symbolizing the divisions of the church into different parts of that body that work together. I mean, when you, you look at the human body, it's the most perfect symbol of organization known, better than an army. It represents the most perfect unity and cooperation down to the smallest and humblest members, which are said to be necessary, Paul says. They're necessary. Your feet are necessary. Right? The elbow's necessary. <laughs> In Ephesians 2, the church is represented as a building fitly framed together. No one part of a building can stand alone, friends. Although there are pillars and columns holding more important position, uh, positions in a building than others, all are necessary to make a complete building. Leaders are those who have been ordained of God for greater service and responsibility to the ministry and the flock of God. They are columns that help hold up the building. This is why the New Jerusalem is referred to in these pillars of the apostles. There are so many examples in the Bible that I could give, friends. But also the the greatest, I don't know if it's the greatest thing, but the fabulous, marvelous thing about it is the church is a representative form of organization. And this form of organization is under the watch care of divinely appointed leaders as described, for example, in Ephesians 4. God's government is marvelous. And we're to be symbols of that government here. But I want you to notice Ephesians 4. We're getting into some some more of the nitty-gritties here. Ephesians 4. And He gave, and that's God, the Holy Spirit, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, you get into the original there. Paul is speaking about two phases, actually, of one office here, when he says pastors and teachers. A shepherd of the flock not only tends to it, but he teaches it. Okay? Because look how they, you can look at how, you know, they did the, Grammar. They set everything up, the punctuation. He gave some apostles, semicolon, and some prophets, 
semicolon, and some evangelists, semicolon, and some pastors and teachers, semicolon. For what? What was the purpose? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These offices will be with us until Jesus returns. That's the purpose of it. purpose is to edify the church to perfect the saints. And God set it up this way. Now some leaders are chosen from a direct call by God, and some are chosen by the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Which doesn't mean one is greater than the other, just different. These mentioned here in Ephesians 4 tend to be the responsibilities that have a direct calling from God. Elders, deacons, deaconesses, treasurers, they're chosen by the church. Usually, aren't they? Now, you study this out, there is a difference between a pastor and an elder. Kind of a fine line, but there is a difference. Pastors are called by God to have more responsibility to oversee the church, usually having more than one church as a rule with the ability to raise other congregations. The Holy Spirit has gifted them with evangelistic uh, preaching and teaching abilities, while elders normally, usually, and I say this, there is a thin line, because most pastors are called by God, most pastors have been elders, but not always the case. Most elders... Elders are seasoned members of a local congregation that tend to oversee, you know, the local group only. Let me give you a quick example of this if I can. In Numbers 11, verses 24 and 25. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people, okay, so you have elders of the people, Moses gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. These particular men that qualify were pulled apart from the elders, the other elders of Israel, they actually were present at the manifestation of the Lord. That tells us something. And as you study this process, I'm not going to go into it in greater detail, but God called these elders as He does pastors. They were to help Moses in his duties in governing Israel. Prophet of the Lord tells us such. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 312. The 70 elders were to assist Moses in the government of Israel, and God put upon them His Spirit and honored them with a view of His power and greatness. Something a little different with them, see? The key I want you to see is that God put upon them His Spirit. This doesn't mean that local elders aren't possessed with the Holy Spirit. But there's something special here. And and the reason God did this here, specifically, was so the people would have confidence in these men as one called of God Himself to serve the flock. And that's very important. Go back to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 381. Like the disciples on the day of Pentecost, that's amazing right there, boom. Day of Pentecost came once, didn't it? It was something very special, wasn't it? Right? And notice this with the 70 elders. Like the disciples on the day of Pentecost, they were endued with power from on high. 
It pleased the Lord thus to prepare them for their work and to honor them in the presence of the congregation, that confidence might be established in them as men divinely chosen to unite with Moses in the government of Israel. So there's, there's some distinguishing going on here, isn't there? These 70 elders were not the same as the, the tribal elders, though they both had the same qualifications to begin with. Each tribe, you'll find, had elders that were chosen by the tribe itself, just as, uh, you know, what a local church does. Local church um, chooses qualified men to be elders at the local level, and God honors that as long as it's done, of course, according to his principles. But there was a difference between the two groups of men, then as well as today. God called men of his own choosing, but they have... Some of the same qualifications, you'll see. Like I said, kind of a fine line, but you'll see God's manifestation in the one more so than the other. It tends to be that way. We know, biblically, Jesus is the head of the church, and He has provided leaders to the church to serve its needs in doing the work of God. Just as husbands serve the needs of the family circle. That's where we learn from. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And so looking at the man, we learn some principles here in organizing God's church. The man is the house band, or the husband, and the leader of the home church. Isn't that right? And by the way, if courtship was handled biblically as it should be, the husband would be chosen or called by God for the wife. Just as they're called to be a leader in the church. God directly, or sometimes indirectly, calls leaders for His bride, the church. But we don't see that today very much at all. But I want to quickly look at the biblical role and responsibilities of the man again, the man, the husband, the father, just real quick, to refresh our memories as we talk about leadership in the church. We learn in studying the role of man that first he is to be the head of the home. Isn't that right? That doesn't mean a hierarchy. He is in full partnership with his wife. They discuss things, but a decision has to be made. He's the head of the home. Second, he's to be the lover of the home. And you find that these are attributes of Christ. Third, he is to be the provider of the home. You start to see that, you know, pastor is to provide for the home. The church, right? Fourth, he's to be the lawmaker of the home. These leaders uphold the law of God in the church. Fifth, he is to be the glue of the home. And that's to say, he is to live at home and be the glue that binds all the members of the family together in a close band. Sixth, he is to be the humble servant of the home. Can you see these are attributes of Jesus as well? And the leaders of the church are to reflect Christ, are they not? And seventh, he is to be the priest of the home. He's the shepherd. He leads the family in worship the true God. So the husband is not the Lord of the woman. He's not the Lord of the family, for he's under Christ. Isn't that right? He's to guide the family as best he can. He's to provide for it. And so the local church has leadership too, whose responsibilities resemble the husband. Now, not every man is prepared for the responsibilities of being a husband. Can we agree to that? I think we can. In like manner, not every man is prepared for the responsibilities of being a leader in the church. There are certain qualifications that must be met by both, and they they actually parallel each other. I think we can see this. Those who are called by God to be the husband of a bride will give evidence of his calling. And biblically speaking, that will be witnessed by the parents and the bride. The same is true for leaders for the church. It will be recognized just as it was 
You know, in our example, we looked at an Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The church will recognize it. There are qualifications for local elder and deacon, just as there are to be for the husband, just as there was for the 70 elders, friends, and as for the disciples. God has qualifications. Let's look at Titus chapter 1. Paul lays out some of these qualifications. Titus 1 verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. He's telling Titus this. And ordain, well there's that word again. It means set aside, right? Ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, that means a person who's been tested is morally fit. So he says, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife. That means if they're married, it's to be to one female. Having faithful children. That means they believe the same thing you do. You're raising them upright. Having faithful children. Not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop or elder, they use bishop interchangeably, must be blameless as a steward of God. Not self-willed. That means uh, somebody self-willed. They're pretty arrogant, self-confident, arrogant. So someone who's not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, you know, not a boozer, no striker, not a fighter, not given to filthy lucre, not in it for the money, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able to sound, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gaysayers. So he's got to be able to preach. And he's got to be able to call sin by its right name. And he's got to be able to hold to the truth and to confound those who scoff at it. So those are some of the qualifications there. Paul lays out to Titus. Now we go to 1 Timothy 3. Verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop or elder, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. He can repeat some of the same things here. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. That means he's orderly. Given, oh, let me not gloss over that. Of good behavior, he's orderly. <laughs> he brings order to the church. To his... He has it in his family and he has it in the church. Given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine. Not, no striker, that means he's not quarrelsome. Um, not a fighter. Not greedy of filthy lucre. He's not eager to gain something by dishonest means. You know, He's not in it for the money. But patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house. Notice that ruleth well, orderly. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? If you don't have your own house in order, how can you bring order to the church? Not a novice. It means he needs to have experience. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. What do people in the neighborhood say about this person? Is it a good report? So he needs to have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Does he have a good witness, you see? Paul then goes through some of the qualifications for the office of deacon, which is very similar but not the same as an elder, is on some points. A deacon may tend to be of less experience as an elder, but also filled with the Holy Spirit, you see, to do his duty as God would have him. Different responsibilities for both offices, really. Verse 8, Likewise must the deacons 
be grave. That means dignified. Not double-tongued. Not given to much wine. Not greedy of filth or lucre. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Means they have to have some experience. You have to prove them. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives, notice this, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so here Paul in Titus and Timothy talks about these qualifications for leadership. And it's actually it's actually pretty plain, isn't it? I mean, when I read it, it seems pretty plain, doesn't it? But there is division in the church over such things, isn't there? And so I, I just want to spend just a moment and clarify something that's really dividing God's church, the professed church, God's church today we see it in our culture it's actually a full on attack of the family unit the Bible teaches we read what Paul has to say we've seen examples the Bible teaches that the offices of apostle pastor and elder should be filled not just by human beings of either gender, but by qualified males only. The New Testament writers, friends, made it clear that such an office holder should be a man, not a woman. And I'll give you an example. If they had believed that any person could qualify, irrespective of gender, they would have used the generic Greek term anthropos. It's a word which refers to human beings, male or female without regard to any gender. But instead, they employed this specific Greek term that means a male person in distinction from a woman. A person capable of being called a husband. And so as we study the family unit, I hope you can see some of the parallels between the role and responsibilities of a man, husband, and father with the leadership responsibilities for the church. I think the evidence is overwhelming. But you'll always have those who are not of a right mind, I would say, a retrobate mind, not going by what the Word says, but by their own inclinations, trying to bring division. Now, there are leadership positions that some women are qualified to fill, such as you know, what we would call a deaconess, a servant. Uh, or treasurer, or clerk. But the interesting thing is that they are not offices that carry out covenant-type responsibilities such as communion, baptism, marriage, organization, such things, because the man represents or symbolizes who? Jesus, the head, in such sacred services just as the husband represents Jesus, the head to the family. And these are referred to as leading responsibilities in the church. Not as to importance, but as to accountability, friends. Let's be clear about it. It's not a sexist thing, though many try to make it out to be. I mean, some men get married before they're qualified to do so, and some men are rushed into leadership in the church prematurely. In fact, that's been one of the major problems that's brought division in the church. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.22, Lay hands suddenly on no man. They are to be tested by time and experience to see if they biblically qualify to hold such positions. I want to share with you one, two, three points here real quickly. First one's from Councils for the Church, page 247. In some of our churches, the work of organizing and of ordaining elders has been premature. 
the Bible rule has been disregarded, and consequently, grievous trouble has been brought upon the church. There should not be so great haste in electing leaders as to ordain men who are in no way fitted for the responsible work. Men who need to be converted, elevated, ennobled, and refined before they can serve the cause of God in any capacity. She says, men, and don't do it hastily. As Paul says, lay hands suddenly on a man. This one's from Review and Herald, October 21st, 1890. There are ministers who claim to be teaching the truth whose ways are an offense to God. They preach but do not practice the principles of the truth. Great care should be exercised in ordaining men for the ministry. There should be a close investigation of their experience. Do they know the truth and practice its teachings? Have they a character of good repute? Do they indulge in lightness and trifling, jesting and joking? In prayer, do they reveal the Spirit of God? Is their conversation holy, their conduct blameless? All these questions need to be answered before hands are laid upon any man to dedicate him to the work of the ministry. We should need the words, excuse me, we should heed the words of inspiration. And then she quotes what Paul says, lay hands suddenly on no man. We need to fill the standard higher than we have done hitherto when selecting and ordaining men for the sacred work of God. I think it's uh, pretty clear, friends. Some people try to make Ellen White say things that she never said. There's one more. Acts of the Apostles, page 90. The organization of the Church of Jerusalem was to serve as a model for that organization of churches in every other place. What? The organization of the Church of Jerusalem was to serve as what? A model for what? The organization of churches in every other place where messengers of truth should win converts to the gospel. The organization of the Church of Jerusalem. There were no women ordained as apostles, deacons, pastors and elders. Those to whom was given the responsibility of the general oversight of the church were not to lord it over God's heritage, but as wise shepherds were to feed the flock of God, being examples to the flock. And the deacons were to be men of honest report. Who? Men of honest report. She's quoting here. Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. These men were to take their position unitedly on the side of right and to maintain it with firmness and decision. Thus they would have a uniting influence upon the entire flock. A uniting influence. This argument over gender has brought division. Because some men and women do not like the role that God has placed upon men and women. And that's the bottom line. And I want to just emphasize, you know, if you've been called to lead, Jesus has given you more responsibility to serve and protect the flock. Mainly just serve the flock. You're not to be Lord over your brethren, but you are to serve your brethren and protect them from error. Ravening wolves. Many today in sheep's clothing. And so we're going to end there this time. And as we stop for now, I want to go over the principles of organization that we've learned so far. Real quickly, first, the Christian family circle is a church. Second, family order teaches about church order. Third, the family and church are organized for service. Fourth, they're not to be organized as congregational or hierarchical form of government, but a representative form of order. As Jesus said, all ye are brethren. Five, they're to be united in faith and doctrine. Six, they're to have a covenant bond with each other and God. Seventh, they're to have a name that expresses who they are and reflects God's character. I probably should put that in. In eight, we've learned, leaders are to be set in the church according to biblical qualifications and also according to the calling of God. And let me tell you, beloved, the ultimate purpose of the entire plan is to prepare people to meet Jesus face to face. That's what it's about. That's what it's all about. The Apostle John says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, 
that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. I hope that you're gaining a blessing and learning principles that God has for the organization of the church, friends. It's really quite simple. And it really is. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for your holy word. It sets us on a straight path. It is a light unto our, our feet. It keeps us from going into darkness. And we know that your church today is in disarray. There's not true gospel order. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us that in our families we will have order and that will be reflected in the church. We pray for that earnestly. We pray for that unity that Jesus asked you for. He prayed for it. May we put aside our differences and and, uh, quit looking down but start looking up more and more and keep looking up. We may be drawn closer to your heart. And may all that love be reflected in our life. Please continue to bless us this Sabbath day for coming days ahead. We need your blessings for the world hates us as it hates Christ. We humbly ask this in His blessed name. Amen.